You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is a road trip. Uh, who doesn't love a good road trip? And as you open it up, you'll, you'll find the main character. His name is Christian. And really the whole story from beginning to end is about his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And it's told as an allegory. And so if you remember all the way back from your uh, English lit classes, an allegory is where the characters, the setting, the plot, really every um, element of the story is not only there to tell the story, but it's also there symbolically pointing um, to something else in order to teach something. And what's, um, what's so enduring and timeless about Bunyan's classic is that he journeys, uh, he parallels the Christian life so that no matter where you might even find yourself today, all the way from um, non-believer to seasoned saint, everywhere in between, no matter where you find yourself this morning, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you can find yourself identifying with different parts of his journey um, along the way. And one of the themes and enduring lessons taught throughout the book is that the road to that celestial city is often paved with difficulty. And by that, I don't merely mean that there's difficulty before you become a Christian, that life is hard and arduous, but then you become a Christian and all of a sudden, now that road becomes uh, really simple and really easy. In fact, most of the difficulty that Christian faces, the difficulty, the trial, the testing, all of that actually comes after he becomes a Christian. When he uh, goes through the wicked gate, the, that narrow gate, and he becomes a Christian, uh, you find that the road becomes actually increasingly more difficult. Um, shortly after he passes through the gate, he comes to what is called the hill of difficulty. Do you see that allegory there? That's the name of the hill, but it's also telling you something about the journey. And when he looks at the hill, he sees that the path is, it's difficult, it's steep. And the narrator describes his ascent up the hill like this. He says, I looked then after Christian to see him go up the hill where I perceived he fell from running to going and from going to clamoring upon his hands and knees because of the steepness of the place. So when Christian starts off, he's got a, a, a nice pace going, he's jogging. But as the steepness increases, he goes from running to climbing to uh, clamoring upon his hands and his knees. On either side of the hill as he approaches it, so there's the, the hill of difficulty, but on either side are two different paths that at first glance seem a whole lot easier than the steep climb. And their names are called the path of danger and the path of destruction. Now they seem easier than climbing the hill, but if you take a moment to think about the names of these two other paths, it's not hard to tell the fate of those who choose those paths. And so as Christian looks at the hill of difficulty and considers which route to take, he says this to himself, this hill though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. So he's, he's kind of girding himself up to take this 
more difficult path. And as you move forward in the book, you'll find other um, paths of difficulty. And at one point near the end, Christian has a friend named Hopeful who tells him this. He tells Christian, these troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. So what is Bunyan saying? He's saying difficulty, trial, and tests, they're not signs that God has abandoned you. Isn't it like us? It's so easy for us at the moment of difficulty, one of our very first thoughts are, is God has abandoned me. I'm here alone. And hopeful saying, no, 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 that's not the case. It's not a sign that God has abandoned you. Or sometimes we think I must be on the wrong path because clearly if I was on the right path, things would be going much more simple. I must have made a wrong turn somewhere. And hopeful saying, no, no, no. Just because you're facing difficulty, it doesn't mean that, you, that God has abandoned you or that you're on the wrong path. Rather, difficulty, trial, and testing is just part of what it means to be a pilgrim. Part of the pilgrim's journey has difficulty, which has been set there by the Lord of the hill. Well, this morning... As we continue in our series in Exodus called Deliverance and Devotion, we come into a new chapter in the life of Israel. See, the book is called Exodus, and, and by chapter 14, they're out, they're out of, of, of Egypt. They've made their way out, which is what the word Exodus means. And the rest of the book, so they've been delivered, and now the rest of the book is about how their hearts are going to become devoted to the Lord. And as we step into this chapter, we see they are delivered, they've been redeemed, they are liberated, and yet the people of God are unformed. They're immature, they are untried, their faith has not gone through a season of testing. So as they begin their pilgrim journey toward the promised land, they will too encounter difficulties and tests. And each one will be an opportunity for them to call to mind the goodness of the Lord and choose to walk by faith. Now today, we're going to cover two episodes of the, the beginnings of their journey. The first episode we'll call Bitter Water Made Sweet. And the second we'll call Bread from Heaven. And though they're a little bit different, both of these episodes kind of parallel one another in that um, we find God testing them in the wilderness. And if we look at these two episodes, we can learn three truths that will help us understand and face the difficulties and testings of our faith. So here's what you're going to see as we go through each one of these episodes. First, you'll see God's process in the testing. God is not arbitrary. He is not indifferent. In fact, he has a methodology and a plan. There is a method to what often seems like madness to us, a process that he uses for his intended purposes. So we'll see a process in the testing. Second, we'll see God's provision in the testing. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, you will find that God will provide for you in the journey. He does not test us beyond what we can bear. And third, we'll see that God has patience with us in the testing. Though we stumble, though we fail, God is faithful and patient with us. His grace abounds throughout the process. So that's where we're headed this morning. Those three words, process, provision, and patience as we walk through these two episodes. So let's begin together in Exodus 15. We'll start in verse 22 
to see our first episode of Bitter Water Made Sweet. Here again the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So again, at this point in the narrative, Israel has crossed the Red Sea. They have left Egypt behind. They've left behind a life of slavery. And for them, it's a new day as they're headed for their new life. And the Bible tells us they head into the wilderness of Shur. Now, when you hear the word wilderness in the Bible, I don't want you to think camping in the mountains with like bubbly brooks and squirrels kind of perched looking so cute when you've got your nice tent and all that kind of stuff. That is not what wilderness is in the Bible. When you think, when you hear the word wilderness in the Bible, you need to think the desert. You need to think barrenness, difficulty, where human life is not sustainable. You don't want to live in the desert. You're just really hoping to get through the desert. And that's exactly where we find them in the text. Now, they, are, they have gone three days now. And so if you've ever watched a survival show, you know they're at that point. Like this is when Bear Grylls would start ripping open stuff to find water, okay? You cannot go more than three days without water. You start to get dehydrated and uh, delirious and you really are on the brink of death at day three. And that's where they are. So whatever provisions they had as they set out, they have been depleted. They actually have uh, moved past just being thirsty. You know, we're like, man, I could use a drink of water. They're well beyond that. They're getting to that point where there's a legitimacy to the panic. Dehydration and desperation have set in because we all know humans can only go a few days without water. Verse 23, when they come to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, imagine the scene. Okay, they're three days into the journey. Um, they, they're, they've run out of water. Uh, I want you to put yourself in this. And you see what looks like an oasis. It looks like salvation. It looks like, okay, there's water. They're desperate. Their lips have begun to crack. Their muscles at this point are all cramping because of the dehydration. And then you see on the horizon what looks like salvation. It's water. And in an instant, all your fears are relieved. Hope has, uh, has come into your body and you just run instinctively and immediately you go in and start lapping up the water. But your body knows if it's bad water. Your body knows to spit it out and reject it if something's not right. And we find that the waters of Marah are not safe to drink. And so you can imagine the, just the, 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 the pull of those emotions. You were, you were on the brink of despair, then you see this water, and now you're, you're, you're feeling hopeful again, but then you taste the water and it's bitter, and you're probably in a worse place psychologically than you were before. Whatever you thought the basement of your despair was before that, you've like broken new ground, and you're even more despairing. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink. Now grumble, it's one of those words that sounds like what it is. Magdal and I were talking about that the other day. There's a lot of words in English that it just kind of sounds like what it is. So grumbling is the verbal expression of an overflow of a heart that has become ungrateful, dissatisfied, and discontent. We all grumble. And in one sense, you don't blame the Israelites because if you think about the situation, they really are in dire straits. 
So it's quite natural to get frustrated, to get stressed, to be scared in moments like this when it feels like all hope is lost. However, in a very real sense, just think for a moment what they've seen play out over the last few months. They've seen God show up time and time again against what was likely the the greatest empire, most powerful empire of their day. They saw God bring plague upon plague. And each time they saw God show up with these mighty displays of power, it was supposed to be like a shot of confidence in the arm that God was for them and that God was with them. Their liberation from slavery was meant to convince them deep down that God would finish what he started. The crossing of the Red Sea, this last miracle that they just saw, was meant to assure them that God was able to overcome any obstacle. So the request for water wasn't wrong. Obviously, they need that. God doesn't judge us for being needy. He doesn't judge us for being weak. He, the Bible tells us in the Psalms, he knows our frame. He made it. So he knows, like, if anybody knows that human beings need water, it's God. It was part of his design. But what God is concerned with is who and what we turn to in our time of need and the manner in which we do it. God cares about the attitude and the posture of the heart. And so verse 25, Moses cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So what we see here, Moses is the, the, the mediator of the people. You notice every time there's a problem, Moses is the one who's going to the Lord. And Moses right now uh, d- does a great job at being a mediator. He models for the people what they should themselves have done. There's a problem, Moses goes to the Lord. Lord, what should we do? Instead of grumbling, the people should have prayed to the Lord to both settle the frenzy of their own souls and to ask the Lord for provision. Like, Lord, we've seen you show up. You've met all of our needs. And here we are in dire straits. Lord, how will we find water? And so the Lord shows Moses a log and says to him, throw it in the water. Which there's nothing in one sense special about the log. This is just the Lord um, uh, putting a little test of faith to Moses. Will you just trust me? I know it seems illogical. Like what's going to happen if you just throw this log into the water? And so it's just an act of faith. Just something very simple. Moses, will you trust me? Will you believe me? And Moses takes it, throws it in, and immediately the bitter water becomes sweet and they're able to drink. And there the Bible goes on to say, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. If you're you're one of those who likes to write in your Bible, circle that word right there. He tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And then, verse 27, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Okay, so here we find that the reason the Lord brought them through the wilderness without water was to test them. It's clear as day. It says he did this to test them. And this word test will become the link that joins uh, this episode and the next episode. Because we'll see both in this chapter and the next that the Lord is doing this to test them. He is leading them through the desert, this path of difficulty, with a purpose in mind. It is to test them. 
So let's remember those three words I, I said at the beginning. We want to look for process, we want to look for provision, and we want to look for patience. And we'll see all three of those there. So first, let's consider God's process. Why are they in the desert wilderness? Like, what has got them there? Did they do something wrong? Like, at this point, have they, is this punishment? And the answer is no. So far, they really haven't done anything wrong. Did they take a wrong turn? Well, no. So this isn't incompetence. It's not punitive. So why are they in the desert? Well, the reason they're in the desert with no water is because God is the one leading them there. You remember from the previous chapters that they are led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It is the Lord who is leading them. So they are literally right where God wants them to be. The reason they're in this hard and difficult and dangerous and uncomfortable place is because God has led them there. Now let, let that just sit on our uh, 21st century modern souls for just a minute. Like we are the people of comfort. Everything about our life is about comfort. We're constantly trying to keep our comfortable lives going. And God is purposefully leading them to a place of discomfort. It is part of his plan for them. It was the journey he was taking them on. So why is he doing it? What is the point of this divine testing? Well, testing both serves to reveal and mature. So it shows what's there and it also brings maturity. In other words, when we're tested, it reveals what's in our heart. So under the stress of testing, what's in our heart just comes out. So think about a cardiologist who's wanting to see like what's the status of this person's heart. Well, what they do is they put you through a stress test to reveal if there's any issues with blood flow to the heart that doesn't show up when you're just sitting on the couch watching TV, right? Your heart's not under a lot of stress in that moment. So what do they do? They, they put you on a treadmill and they elevate your stress so that they see, okay, is there a problem with blood flow coming to the heart? And the only way to know that is to put you through stress. So the stress reveals the heart. Same thing. God brings, the, brings people through uh, difficulty, stress, so that it reveals what's in the heart. And when it's revealed, then you can diagnose it. So whatever comes out, you can start to go, oh, okay, that's what's in there. Now I need to deal with that problem. And the same is true of us. God intentionally leads us into paths of difficulty in order to show us, to reveal to us the true nature of our faith. So the question is, where do we run to when we are stressed? How do we respond? What, in, in other words, what comes out? What behaviors, what attitudes, what postures? So when you are uh, going through paths of difficulty, um, do you run to coping mechanisms? Like, like quick hit, feel good kind of things. Like shopping, substance abuse, mindless scrolling, pornography. What kind of coping mechanisms do you run to in order to just get, like, get a quick hit of dopamine? Just to feel good for a moment. Or do you put your trust in systems and people? Or... Do you go to the Lord? Do you go to him? Do you bring your prayers to him? Do you bring your needs to him? What's the general tone and posture of your heart? When people ask you how things are going, how do you respond to them? 
especially and in, in particularly to the members of your own family? Do you get frenzied? Do you start to panic? Do you become angry? Are you entitled? See, all of these are responses, ways that we can process and deal with the stress instead of going to the Lord. When you find yourself on these hard and difficult roads, do you come to the Lord with that real concern, with a posture that says, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I'm coming to you. I need your help. But not only does testing reveal, it also matures. There's, there's just something about that actual situation that going through these difficult situations and circumstances that changes us in ways that you couldn't be changed otherwise. In other words, difficulty is the maturation process. Like if you want to get stronger, you don't get stronger by sitting on the couch, right? You get stronger by getting up, doing something active, lifting, right? In the same way, our spiritual muscles do not get stretched and stronger in times of rest. They actually get stronger. We grow in our faith when we have to depend on the Lord. They get strengthened through trial, difficulty, and testing. We see this all over the Bible. One of my favorites is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Which seems kind of paradoxical because you're like, why would I meet difficulty with joy? Well, here's the reason why. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, if you want your faith to become perfect towards the desired end, then it's going to go through periods of trial and testing. So in God's kindness, he provides uh, for the people of God in this moment. He provides for their physical need and he provides for their spiritual needs. So he knows they need water and how does he provide? Well, he provides a miracle to make the bitter water turn sweet. And he also gives them the provision of his word. He gives them insight in this moment how to live faithfully as the people of God. So the process of testing reveals a need for their faith to grow. And then he speaks into their situation. He teaches them. Our faith, your faith, my faith is, is grown both by going through the process of testing and then also learning to receive his word. Do you notice that in the text? I'm trying to tease out some of this process. He makes them go through hard things and then he also gives them his, his word and says you need to listen and pay attention to my word. And both of those things will grow your faith. And so he gives them a basic operating principle. Essentially, he says that there are blessings and benefits that come with obedience. And inversely, you can expect judgment and curses for disobedience. Now, let me add a quick caveat to this. This isn't a hard and fast rule. So this is like a general principle. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there will be times that you go through uh, seasons of difficulty uh, that you'll face difficulty while you're obeying. Like you'll be doing really well. You'll be obeying the Lord and you'll go through a season of difficulty. And you can be assured that what you are facing is not punitive, meaning it's not to punish you, but it's part of God's maturation process, okay? And there will be times in your life when you're disobedient, where you're not living as faithfully as you could be or should be, and God will choose to be lenient and not enact immediate judgment. We are not always punished to the full extent of 
of what we deserve every time we sin. I mean, the fact of the matter is, for the wages of sin is death. So every time you sin and don't die, God's being lenient in some senses towards you. But there will be times in your life when you are not following the path that you're supposed to. And just God, he's just, he just gracious to you. But for the most part, God is telling Israel, there is a pattern I've set up in the world. That when you obey and when you live by faith, you experience benefits and blessings. And when you don't, you experience uh, uh, curses and judgment. There are benefits for doing so. So in other words, he's saying, if you will live by faith and be attentive to the voice of the Lord, and if you're diligent to live in obedience to his commands, then you will, as the people of God, experience life under the blessings of God. He says you'll have ample food supply, you'll have water for the journey, you're going to inherit the promised land, and you won't experience the curses and the plagues and the judgment that Egypt experienced when they opposed Yahweh. And so what he's saying is this. Um, there will be times in your journey of faith where you experience difficulty and suffering as simply part of God's maturation process for you. There will also be times when you experience difficulty and suffering just because you live in a broken and sinful world. Through no fault of your own, like, there will be hardness and difficulty. But wisdom says, don't add insult to injury. Don't bring upon yourself more difficulty, more suffering through foolish, foolishness of sin and hardness of heart. And then as this episode ends, what does God lead them? He leads them to Elim, where they're able to camp. They're able to rest. And they were refreshed by spring water and shade from the palm trees. Here we see more provision as they're able to drink freely in Elim and to be refreshed by the coolness of shade. This is an example of the Lord's patience. Notice, despite the, the, the attitude of the heart that's entitled, there's no judgment here. God doesn't offer a word of judgment. He, he offers them um, words of encouragement. He offers them um, water to drink, and he gives them a principle to live by. But there's no judgment here. No judgment for grumbling, even though uh, there could have been and should have been. God withholding judgment is not an indication that what they did was right. It just means that God was being patient and gracious with them. And then after the bitterness of Marah comes the sweetness of Elim. Victor Hamilton writes this. Often after trials and tests of Mara, God has an Elim prepared for his people. However... Neither all Marahs nor all Elims are helpful to God's people. Dealing with nothing but Marah day after day would suck the life out of us. Dealing with nothing but Elim day after day would soften us and never stretch us. So a healthy combination is, on the one hand, having our backs against the wall, learning to trust God, and on the other hand, those days where we feel like we are living on the mountain underneath a cloudless sky. You can expect in your life to have periods of Marah, seasons of of difficulty, trial, and testing. And then by the grace of God, you can also expect to experience alims where it seems like everything is going your way. And we need both. God's testing is not arbitrary, nor is it punitive. It is for our good. And that process is how our faith is strengthened and matured. And when we come to places of difficulty, you can trust that the Lord will provide what you need, And because he is a God of grace, when you stumble and fall, he is patient. D. 
Do you see it? You see the process? See his provision? See his patience? Now that's episode one. Let's rewind and go forward. Let's go forward here to episode two and see if you can find process, provision, and patience again. Now, chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Okay, all this is setting. They leave the oasis of Elim, and they head back into the depths of the wilderness towards Sinai, where God is going to establish his covenant with them. And then Moses tells us it's the 15th day of the second month. And so if you're tracking with the new calendar, it's been about 30 days since they left Egypt. So if you can go three days without water, how long can you go without food? Verse 2. Whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. So if the difficulty of the last episode was no water and thirst, the difficulty of this episode is hunger and no food. And again, we see the people of God grumbling. And I hope you noticed kind of an increase in intensity to the grumbling. They are starting to make accusations against the Lord. Like, you have brought us here to kill us. But they grumble against the leadership. So they don't bring that grumbling to the Lord. They bring it to Moses and Aaron. And at this time, more of their heart comes out. It's not a good look, is it? It's kind of delusional, it's exaggerated, it's revealing. In their frenzy, they're kind of doing revisionist history, looking back on their past uh, and believing lies. I mean, they're actually saying it was better in the land of slavery. Because at least we got to sit by the fire at night with our meat pots. Right? Like they're finding the one little thing that they enjoyed in in the land of slavery and saying life was good back then. And they accuse God of bringing them out here to die in the wilderness. Again, on the one hand, we get it. We've all been hangry before, right? We know what happens when you get a little hungry. And they're fearful. It's been 30 days. They're tired of feeling uncomfortable. They're tired of the discomfort. In other words, they want the road to Sinai to be easy. Isn't that true of all of us? We just want the road to be easy. Somewhere we believed the lie that life was supposed to be or meant to be easy. Their hearts have not learned the truth of Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Their faith has not come to that place yet to go. It's better to be in the wilderness and hungry and be with the Lord than to be back in Egypt with meat pots without him. Their hearts have not learned that the Lord will provide for their needs. Then we come to verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. There's our word again. To test them whether they will walk on my law or not. So again, the people grumble to Moses and Aaron. And the Lord speaks to Moses to let him know how he intends to provide for them and to use this difficult situation to once again test his people. Now we know we don't like the word test, do we? 
We don't like it because it's generally seen as a negative word in our culture. Begins to elicit stress and anxiety. Like, will I measure up? There's a lot of work involved to get ready for the test. But what I want you to see is that divine testing is a good thing when it's in the hands of a good God. It's meant to develop and shape his people and to teach us to trust him. Again, it reveals where we need to grow. And so the Lord, in his goodness, will continue to lead them in the desert. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, writes this. The hardest part of being in the desert is that there's no way out. You don't know when it will end. There's no relief in sight. A desert can be almost anything. It could be a child who's gone astray, a difficult boss, boss, or even your own sin and foolishness. God customizes deserts for each of us. God takes everyone he loves through a desert. It is his cure for our wandering hearts, rest, restlessly searching for a new Eden. Desert life sanctifies you. You have no idea that you are changing. You simply notice that after you've been in the desert a while, that you are different. The desert becomes a window then to the heart of God. He finally gets your attention because he's the only game in town. What he's saying is life, uh, in, in, like, like, when life is comfortable, there's lots of options. But life in the desert, there, it, it's, it, it singularizes our focus and attention on the Lord. In fact, years later, just before Moses dies in the book of Deuteronomy, he speaks to the people of God and reflects on the meaning of the wilderness journey. I would encourage you, if you're reading through the book of Exodus, uh, read it with its companion novel, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Moses' reflections back on the Exodus. And often he gives insight into that time period. They're actually meant to be read together. Pro tip for you. Okay, and he basically says the same thing as Paul Miller. He says in chapter 8, verse 2, Moses writes this to the people of God. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, when Moses looks back, he says the reason that the Lord led us through the wilderness is because we didn't even know our own hearts. Aren't we kind of suspect of that statement? We're like, no one knows me better than me. And Scripture is telling us you don't often know yourself as well as you think you do. You don't always know what's in your heart. And the Lord's process of testing helps to reveal what is in our hearts. And that process humbles us and it teaches us to trust in the Lord. Now pick up the narrative with me in verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumbled against us? I love that. Moses and Aaron are like, hey, why are you grumbling? Like, why are you complaining? Like, we can't provide food in the desert. That's like above our pay grade. You should go to the Lord. And Moses and Aaron, they come back and they tell them, listen, we've heard from God. And by evening, the Lord is going to provide for you again as a way to reinforce your faith in him. 
In the evening and in the morning, the people of God are going to see that not only is God uh, caring about their physical needs, but he's also caring about their spiritual needs because they're going to see the Lord in his glory. What he's saying is that what you're about to see is going to not only provide like meal for you to eat. Kevin and I were talking about today, it's like the first chicken sandwich. They're going to have quail and bread. You put them together, you got this nice chicken sandwich, right? He's going to provide for them in such a way as to not only provide for their needs, but in seeing God provide, it's going to encourage their faith. They're going to see God's glory in a way that changes them. And they're going to know that it was Yahweh alone who brought them out of Egypt. And we move ahead into verse 13 to 15, we see the provision of God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So just like uh, Moses and Aaron said, in the morning or in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp in a way that it, w- it was easy for them to catch and to, uh, and to cook. And so now they had meat to eat. And in the morning, as the dew uh, covered the earth and then left, it left behind a flaky substance. And later in, in the narrative, we see that it had kind of a savory and sweet um, flavor profile to it. It was unlike anything they had ever eaten. And it was, it was something that they could then take and make bread out of and so it was so new to them that when they saw it they said what is it it's the hebrew for it it sounds like the hebrew for manna what is it and that's just what they called it they couldn't they had no frame of reference for what it was and so they they just called it like the what is it bread like what is this stuff we don't know but it's but it's bread from the lord whatever it was they were able to gather it and make bread from it and then the lord gave them instruction about how this was all going to play out. Verse 16, this is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some, some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And the Lord was angry with them. So morning by morning they gathered it each as much as they could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So here's what would happen. God said, in the morning, when, you, when, when the manna is there, gather enough for a day's provision. How much is an omer? It's, it's enough for a day's provision, basically what it is. And so he's saying, eat, get, get one omer for everyone in the house. That should be enough bread for everyone to eat to the full um, every single day. It was also time sensitive. So you got to get up in the morning. You can't just lounge around lazy all day because by the time the midday sun came out, it would kind of melt away. So each morning, get up, gather your omer of manna, get going, make the bread, have something um, to eat, okay? And he told them a very specific amount to get. Don't stockpile it. Don't say, well, I got I to gotta have this like kind of a hoarder shelf of it. No, no. Just learn daily reliance upon the Lord. Again, just like the log in the water, this is an act of faith that God has provided for you for today. And you can trust him to provide for you tomorrow, And yet there were some who did not listen. They gathered more than they should have or they they rationed their portion, hoping, okay, if God doesn't provide, I'll have my little uh, manna bread left over. If God is not good on his word, I'll have something to eat. But what would happen with that leftover part? 
it would quickly mold and breed worms to show them, don't put your trust in this. Put your trust in me. I mean, just think of that vivid picture that God is teaching them of daily dependence on the Lord. But then, that would be for the first six days. Then the pattern would change a bit leading into the Sabbath. Verse 22, on the sixth day, they were supposed to gather twice as much. So before, only gather enough for one day. But on the sixth day, he says, actually, this day, gather two portions. And then all the leaders of the congregation came to Moses and said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow, the seventh day, is a day of solemn rest, holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. So six days you gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. On the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. Again, they're not getting the lesson, right? They found nothing there. But the Lord said to Moses, how will you refuse to keep my commandments? How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Emphasis on the word given you. It's a gift. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Okay. So on the sixth day, in preparation for the Sabbath, they were to gather twice as much. Which if you think about it in their minds, they're going, wait, the last time we gathered too much or, or kept it, it spoiled. So again, what is this? An opportunity to trust the word of the Lord. That on this day in particular, it won't breed worms and stink. And that even though there's no new manna on the Sabbath day, that the manna from the day of preparation will be enough for them. The Lord was giving his people a day of rest. Now think about this. If you've been in slavery your whole life, you think you get days off? You think you get a, a weekly day of rest? This was meant to be a gift for the people of God to rest just to enjoy the gift of being God's child, to trust him and to worship him. And yet there were still some who didn't believe God's word. And on the seventh day, they went out to find manna and there was nothing there. Chapter ends with Moses telling us that this pattern went on day after day, week after week for the entirety of the 40 years in the wilderness. So what can we learn about God's testing here? What about his process first truth to learn the human heart often needs more than one lesson they didn't get the the lesson didn't settle at the waters of marah it often didn't settle even later when they would have the uh, the the daily uh, manna and what what we see here is that the human heart needs to to uh to to grow and to mature and to be tested and to learn new lessons more than one time the lessons at marah did not convince the israelites to seek the lord in their faith a few weeks later, when they had exhausted their provisions, instead of turning to the Lord humbly in prayer, Lord, you provided for us in the past with water where we saw no water. Now, where we need food, will you provide for us? I find great encouragement that I'm not the only one who has a hard time learning lessons of faith. I often get discouraged because I think, why, why do I still need these lessons? And yet here I find encouragement that uh, the humans need more than one lesson. Just like the Israelites needed to revisit the lesson, so do I.
Second thing we can learn is uh, this example of daily dependence, that faith is about daily dependence. The provision of manna and quail comes each day with just enough for each day. Inherent in this practice is the lesson to learn of daily dependence. Friends, we can't store up yesterday's blessings for today. We can't store up today's provision for tomorrow. Each day is a new day to trust the Lord for new mercies and new provision. It's just like Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Third, our faith grows incrementally over time. Now this is a hard one for us because we like instantaneous things. We like things fast, we like them to come quickly, and we like them to come easily. And yet faith doesn't work like that. Your faith grows incrementally over time, such that you often don't notice it growing one day to the next. You only notice it uh, season by season. The Israelites were delivered and saved in a relatively short amount of time. Like liberation and deliverance comes easy, comes quick. It's the growing and maturing of their faith that takes a long time. If you want some theological categories for this, justification happens in an instant. You are justified in a moment when the Lord declares you righteous. The process of sanctification takes a lifetime. Friends, we are delivered, redeemed for devotion. We are redeemed for relationship. And that process of change doesn't happen overnight. It often doesn't happen in the comforts at home. It happens in the wilderness through difficulty. Faithful character is forged in the fires of trial. It's exactly what we learned in 1 Peter as a church family when we went through that together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is precious and it goes through the crucible fires of testing and trial so that all of the impurities can be burned up so that what is left behind is more pure gold. So I hope you've seen the provision In the process of God, now briefly, I'd like you to see God's patience with his people in this episode. Notice he doesn't test them like a harsh professor. No offense, Andrew. He's not a harsh professor. He tests them like a patient, loving father. Again, Deuteronomy is helpful. In chapter 1, verse 31, he says, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness. Now pay attention. Where you have seen how the Lord carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until he came to this place you know what he's saying in this sermon to the people of God that as you went through the wilderness God was like a father to you carrying you like a father carries his son he is patient and that includes the test the testing we change through relationship He doesn't treat us like an object and just zap that change into us. He works with us because we are part of that process. It's often painful and long, but we are part of that process as we learn to believe new truths, to form new desires, and to learn new habits. And what I want you to see, especially as we continue to go on, that though Israel will fail time and time again, he is patient with them. It's not like flunking a course at school. If you flunk a course at school, there's no patience. You just have to take the course over again. 
at cost to yourself. When you're in school, you're trying to prove what? That you deserve that degree. You're saying, listen, I have the competence. I have the the skills uh, for this degree. So you go through testing trying to prove that you are a good student. But children aren't tested to prove that they're children. You're a child because you're a child. You're tested not to prove your worth, not to prove your status as a child, but you're, you're tested so that you can mature. Friends, there's no such thing as untested faith. It will be tested. And, the, and God's patience and grace is that his mercies are new each morning. So when we fail, the Lord comes to us like a good father and says, my son, my daughter, let's try again tomorrow. That's the goodness and patience of God. And it's an extension of his love and grace. So friends, my hope this morning was that in looking at Israel's testing in the wilderness, that you might find a bit of your story, a bit of your journey in their journey. Paul tells us that these things, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. We are meant to look at their life, the journey of Israel to see our journey. And the hope is that as sons and daughters, that we would come to see God's testing as an extension of his involved, intimate personal fatherly care and concern for your growth and maturity. Did you know that Jesus was tested in the wilderness? He was led by the Spirit. In the same way that Israel was led by the hand of God into the wilderness, Jesus himself was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness so that his faith could be tested. And where Israel failed and where we have failed, the goodness of the gospel is that Jesus did not. He faced every single trial without wavering. He passed every test perfectly. In short, Jesus lived the life that you and I have failed to live. And he did so so that he could impart to us, give us his perfect record to you and me when we put our trust in him. And as he lived his life, he was constantly pointing people to himself. You remember in John 4 when he met a woman at the well who was thirsty, who needed water, And he told her that he could uh, quench her thirst because he had living water that would be like a well of life springing up in her soul. I wonder, as we were looking at the waters of Marah, did you think about Jesus being living water, sweet water? Later in John chapter 6, after Jesus had taught a hungry crowd, they had no bread, they had no food, and they were hungry. And Jesus took a little boy's lunch and he multiplied it among them so that he could provide bread in the wilderness. All the while pointing to himself as the true bread from heaven sent by God to satisfy us. Friends, Jesus is the living water. He's true bread from heaven that satisfies. And he is the perfect son who makes it possible for us to become sons and daughters when we believe in his name. That's why John could say at the beginning of his gospel, to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, believe in Jesus and what he has done for you. Look to him as living water and true bread from heaven. And let's together trust the Father's testing as he seeks to mature us and lead us all the way home to the celestial city.